0: The Wainwright Prize, the stories behind the books, brought to you by PlanetPod. Welcome to this special edition of PlanetPod with me, Amanda Carpenter, celebrating the 2020 Wainwright Prize in which we bring you the stories behind the books through interviews with this year's shortlisted authors. Now in its seventh year the Wainwright Prize for UK nature writing is awarded annually to the book which most successfully inspires readers to explore the outdoors and to nurture a respect for the natural world. The prize was founded in memory of Alfred Wainwright by Francis Lincoln who published the iconic Pictorial Guides to the Lakeland Fells. There is a strong link between walking and writing, whether it's striding out across the fells or meandering through woodland, the very act of walking seems to unlock and release creativity. What better way to celebrate and commemorate that most famous of walkers than through this prize? This year's prize has been extended to include a second category for books about global conservation and climate change. And the two short lists reflect the breadth and range of contemporary nature writing, both in the UK and around the world. Wonderland by Ginny Reddy is about Ginny's journey to connect with a magical other landscape in Britain to develop a more spiritual, intimate and reciprocal relationship with nature. It has a timely eco-spiritual edge and is a blend of memoir and nature writing which touches on the themes of well-being, identity and belonging. Ginny thank you so much for joining us at Planet Pod and welcome.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: Um, it's clear from what I've read about you that you're a traveler, someone who embraces wand- a wandering lifestyle and there's so much to talk about with your book but I wonder if we could start with maybe thinking about where the book came from and what the kind of inspiration was for writing it now at this moment in your life.
1: Uh, Well I had been a travel writer for a long time and uh, on my travels I had had opportunities to meet people from indigenous cultures and I was always struck by the way that for these people it was perfectly natural to enter into a reciprocal relationship with with the forces of nature, with an animate, sentient nature, a, a kind of relationship that involved the, the, the seeking of wisdom and the, the receiving of insights. And uh, it, it was a very, it seemed to me, a very reverent uh, and humble relationship. And I found this fascinating. And, um, you know, I wanted to know if somebody like myself might be able to experience a glimpse of, of of that kind of relationship for myself.
0: Okay. And is it something that you had experienced in your nature writing previously? Or was this did this feel like a new adventure?
1: Um, well, I was a, a travel writer for a long time, like I said. So I'm coming from that background. I was coming from that background. So it was you know, the journeying
0: I, as much as the... It, was the...
1: it was the journeying. But also, you know... There are healers in my family, so I've always been interested in that side of life. I've always been interested in magic and mysticism from a young age, so that's always been there. Um, You know, I've traveled widely, my family have traveled widely. Um, I love making journeys. I grew up in Canada. I had, uh, I spent my first couple of years. In the Laurentian mountains, I had the wilderness as my backyard. Uh, in Montreal, I had the St. Lawrence River at the end of my street. So I don't think I ever consciously thought of myself as a nature writer. I don't think I ever consciously even thought of nature until you know, the last five, six years or so. I think you can be interested in these things and um, feel moved by these things, but not actually label them as such.
0: I can see where a quest for a magical landscape would come if you were somewhere with a dramatic background, like 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 Canada. It's hard to to I guess for some of us to think about the magic in bits of the home counties, for example, or some of the journeys around the UK. So, so what what sort of magic were you unlocking as you made those journeys?
1: Well, when I talk about magic, I'm, I, I am talking about seeking. A more spiritual dimension to my roaming, seeking the divine in the landscape. I guess you could say. And for me, magic is a mindset. It's not a, not necessarily a physical, tangible thing. It's a, it's entering into a spirit, a particular spirit. And I wanted to enter into the spirit of my endeavor. Um, so I wasn't, you know, wasn't plotting. I wasn't plotting a journey from A to B. I wasn't sitting at home sticking pins on a map. I was invoking the spirit of of the land. Um, the divine to guide me and to lead me. And I, I know it's really hard to talk about these things because in the West, we're all so um, enmeshed in this rational mindset, mm. but that is what I wanted to do. That's what the book is about. So how did, um, how did you choose where to walk? Well, like I said, it was a combination of things, a deep listening, um, following my intuition, doing a bit of Googling, just, just seeing whatever, you know, whatever way the winds took me. And it, it wasn't a rational process. It wasn't, it wasn't, I was, it's very hard to talk about these things in it with a, in, with a rational head on because it wasn't coming from there. It's coming from my heart. So just to give you an example, um, somebody passed me, um, a, a, a treasure map and it was this beautiful map of a healing springs and so I looked at this and I thought I need healing I want to go and see if I can find this spring springs and so that that led me to the springs and another time I think I was um, on the tube and I happened to see a labyrinth um, design on the wall and I thought that's interesting and I'd walked a few labyrinths previously in other countries um, just because I, I just find any kind of land art. Any kind of mystery, fascinating, um, and so I did a Google and I came to the Worldwide Labyrinth Locator. Um, <laughs> Who knew there was then, such a thing? <laughs> yeah, exactly. And then I found this beautiful labyrinth, and I just knew the second I saw it that I wanted to go and stay there. Other times, you know, things would just kind of come to me. You know, I I heard through the grapevine about um, a woman of the old ways. You know, she'd call herself a British shaman. So sometimes information did just kind of come to me. Um, and sometimes I would just be, you know, constantly asking, show me what I need to know, show me what I need to know, send to me what I need to know. Um,
0: so do you, feel it's a, do you feel it's something special to you or do you feel that any of us could perhaps make these types of journeys, if only we could learn how to unlock ourselves a little bit and listen perhaps more to things that, that as you say, are not wholly rational, don't sit in boxes that aren't about counting, that are about feeling and responding?
1: I think, of course, um, anybody can, but the desire has to be there. The curiosity, it has to feel organic. You know, you can't dial up experiences. They have to come from the heart. Um, I, I'd, I'd wanted to do this for, for some time. It, you know, like I said, the, the interest grew as a result of my life experiences, as a result of the journeys I had been taking. So it was a very organic process but i don't think you can you can dial up experiences in this way
0: how important i mean obviously the the, the experiences and the journey and the being open is really important how much how important is it, is, the, is the writing it down and the collecting the narrative and being in a position to share it with other people is that a kind of equal driver or does that almost come as a byproduct because it's it's so good to keep it's too good to keep to yourself
1: uh i've always been a writer from the time i was little i thought of myself as a writer uh, I'm a writer first. Uh, that's how I see myself. And um, writing in a way that is readable and interesting, that's my goal. And I try really, really hard to put myself in the shoes of the reader all the all the time. So I spent a lot of ter- lot of time crafting this narrative. Um, and for me, that was, just as interesting as as going off and, and and doing whatever I did uh for the book I think for each page I may have done about 20 drafts 20 30 drafts you know I put a lot into it
0: yeah you've actually said quite quite categorically this isn't a book about conservation and yet your description of being um open to the kind of, you know, the sensory animate nature of, 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 of the landscape and of, of, of wild places and of and nature itself is very similar to the sort of culture that's infused things like the Declaration of the Rights of Mother Earth and some of those movements in the bigger global conservation world that are about actually respecting the earth as having rights in its own sense. So do you think there's any kind of parallels or crossovers in, in, in those types of areas of thought Or is that not something that's, that's part of your thinking?
1: Yeah, because I'm talking about fostering um, a feeling of kinship with the land, um, a way of feeling um, an intimate reciprocal connection with an animate nature, the bigger part of ourselves, because we are the human aspect of the natural world. And that can only foster a love that is is deep and organic because you want to protect what you love not out of a sense of duty but because who wants to harm themselves
0: so it's almost seeing nature as an extension of 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 human life rather than just of something this rather pretty
1: thing at the end of the garden well we are nature we are the human aspect of nature um and I think people from indigenous cultures understand this very well
0: do you think that's something that that we 've lost, I mean both because of urbanization, but perhaps because because you know the a, a large percentage of the u k population views nature as, as being perhaps its back garden and no further, so do you think we've as a culture and as a as a country have lost that connectivity
1: well one thing i've noticed is uh, people are very keen to be able to identify things and classify things, and i I get the argument, of course, if you can identify a thing you become more familiar with it and and you, be, you come to know it better I, I understand that argument but I think that when we we become too concerned with observing things we tend to objectify what we observe and separate ourselves from the thing we are observing um and I'm more interested in being in relationship with things so I think maybe we've lost some of that yeah um is there
0: um is there a part or a passage of the book or or an element of the book that really encapsulates some of that because part of what we're trying to do through these these short interviews is is give give listeners an insight into the tone and flavor of the books I mean obviously because they will then go out and buy the book and that's very important but more importantly to just give them an insight that they might not be able to get just from reading the snippets on the website uh
1: yes um I'm torn between two passages so (laughs) I'll read one and you can tell me if it feels like the right kind of passage.
0: <laughs> well, that's, that's your choice. So.
1: What was I seeking anyway? A more intimate way of relating to the earth, for the land to guide me and see into me and speak to me, for magic to unfold before my eyes, for the gods to leave giant post-it notes for me in the sky. Whatever I was reaching for, I craved communion. I hungered for it. I'd always loved to roam, but now I wanted to roam with a juicier intent. Still, I was no land whisperer, no expert natural navigator, no shaman. I wasn't rooted in a single cultural tradition. I was just a woman striking out on her own. How would I set forth? What was the plan? This idea of throwing logic and order to the wind and letting my spirit and the land be my compass was all well and good. But I had to start somewhere. Where would I begin? Where would I go? This wasn't a from one side of the country to the other kind of thing. Then again, maybe I would leave it to serendipity and the mysterious dictates of magic. For if I was going to do this, I'd need to enter fully into the spirit of my endeavor. Anything less would be a tepid charade, an exercise for my mind and not my heart. And I wanted what my heart wanted. I wanted to travel lightly too with some levity. At the outset, I held on to one thing. I had another intimate experience of otherness, my own. I was British by birth, Indian by descent, Canadian by upbringing, South African by my parents' birthplace. I was always going to be an outsider, so this journey would be just one more facet of my outsiderness. The wound of living in the margins was something I carried so deep within me, was so much a part of me that I barely spoke about it. It was there though, ever present. So in seeking the wild unseen, in a way, I would be attempting to make contact with friends and allies. That's how I saw it anyway. So what did it matter? What people thought I had nothing to lose and everything to gain. That's wonderful.
0: Thank you. I think that really does sum up some of the things that you've been saying. And it's a truly beautiful passage. Um, And there's certainly no sense that you've, you know, it comes, it flows so naturally, you know, you've told us you write each page 20 times but that certainly doesn't seem like that it seems like that's just flown straight from the heart and so thank you I mean I guess I should touch on the fact that people have commented you know you're a woman of color we're walking through a predominantly white landscape and I think the, the landscape of the UK particularly the rural landscape is very white very Anglo-Saxon um, some would say perhaps a bit conservative small c was there ever did that ever get in the way was that ever a barrier or was it just part of
1: the journey for you? Uh, I saw it as just part of my journey. Like I said, I've I've been a travel writer for a long time and wherever I've gone, um, no matter how excited I am about setting off somewhere, I'm always thinking at the back of my mind, how will I be received at my destination? And it was the same in the countryside. So, um, you know, I'm used to that. I'm used to that feeling. And one thing I want to say is that Yes, it's a very white environment in the countryside, and people, people are drawn to the difference. The eye is drawn to difference, and the person observing that difference, what they are thinking, they could be thinking something positive, they could be thinking something negative, they could be completely indifferent. I don't know, but all I know is that for myself, on the receiving end of that, it can feel disconcerting. For instance, if I am about to go into a pub, you know, an Asian woman about to go into a pub on her own, I'm, I'm always slightly bracing myself because I'm aware I'll be clocked. Yeah. But I have to say, um, my experiences have been overwhelmingly positive. Uh, I know that's not the same for everybody, but it is true for me. And I also know that I've often traveled in the countryside on my own or with a, a, one or two friends who happen to be white. I've never actually gone into the countryside with, you know, a big group of Indians or a big group of Asians or black people. or And I, I'm not sure if the reception would be the same, you know, I, I don't know. I've not had that experience.
0: One would hope that with our increasing kind of awareness of, 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 of race and difference and our understanding and our need and our tolerance, hopefully our increasing tolerance, that that wouldn't be the case, but I, it, I'm not sure I'm not sure. I'd want to, you to put that to the test right now.
1: <laughs> I mean, I've I've not had that experience, so I'm I can't say. But I mean, I'm sure other people have spoken about their experiences. Um, yeah. One thing, one thing I noticed um, recently, there was um, a far right group which unfurled a banner on the top of Mam Tor, a peak in Derbyshire, um, which said "White Lives Matter," and. Um, you know, very few organizations spoke out about that. Very few nature uh, organizations spoke out about that. And I was disappointed mm. um, because being uh, anti-racist means speaking out against yeah. injustice. Um, and it also made me very much want to climb Mam Tour.
0: Well, I think you should take a group of women with you, definitely, um, because there is, um, you know, there, then there is. Uh, we talk about it a lot on, on on the wider podcast that relationship between racial justice, climate justice, gender justice, and the intersectionality of all of those. And I think that you know there is an understanding and awareness, but perhaps ironically, that sits in 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 a kind of urban metropolitan elite and less in in a rural um, a rural community. I don't know. I'm only going to get people phoning into the podcast now and saying that's just not true we're not racist just because we live in the countryside and let's jolly well hope that's the case but well I have I, I do have do friends
1: who, I have friends who live in the countryside yeah we, well yeah, we conversations <laughs> yeah I think it's just
0: an interesting thing isn't it and I think that the, the you know you touched on two points I mean one is that as a woman on your own walking into a pub in in a community that you don't know you're quite vulnerable I think and uh there are certain you know, certain places where people would turn and look at you and, and add to that the dimension of being a woman of colour, then, you know, there's, there's, there's reason for people, you know, um, for people to see it, feel anxious if they're in that position. But I'm glad to hear that that didn't happen to you. And I hope that we're growing a greater degree of tolerance and understanding. Um, so I need to ask you this, because I ask everybody, where do you actually do your writing? I mean, are you kind of curled up in a chair in the corner of the study or do you write in the bus or where does it, where does, where does it happen?
1: I love questions about the process of writing. I love them, so thank you for asking that. Um, I often write where I'm sitting right now, which is in my study. Uh, Before the pandemic, I would write in cafes, the library. I love my library, Wimbledon Library. Mm. Um, Yeah, you know, nowhere that unusual, I guess. Yeah, Um, and do you need do you need peace and quiet, or
0: are you are you good with background distraction
1: that's really funny because when I'm in my when I'm at home in my study I need absolutely quiet when I'm in a cafe I love working with a buzz around me and and the same in the library so, so, goes so is the
0: writing different depending on where it's been crafted
1: ah that's interesting um you know I need to exercise before I write So I find that if I've exercised and then I can run to the cafe, (laughs) (laughs) if I've gone for a swim and then I go and sit down in a cafe, I'm in a, I'm in, I'm in in a kind of more meditative space and I can write more deeply, more easily. Um, if I'm at home, I need to go for a walk in the woods first or for a bike ride or something, but I always need to do some exercise before I write.
0: Yeah well i think that touches on the point i made in the introduction that there is a link between physical movement particularly walking but other forms of physical movement and the unleashing of creativity and you know the physical act allows our brains to just disengage and go to a different space so i think that you know i'm sure that's the reason that so many people write about walking because when you're walking things come to you in a way that they don't necessarily
1: when you just well i read yeah. i read somewhere that when you're walking um, both sides of your brain are being stimulated and mm-hmm. therefore that stimulates your creativity
0: yeah yeah so there's the, a whole new book there to explore. Ginny, thank you so much. I mean, it's been fascinating talking to you and, and we wish you h- huge luck with the prize. And um, you have said it's not a manifesto or a conservation book, but is there anything that you would want to leave listeners with, a, a call to action or an inspiration or, or a plea that they, that's something they think about as a result of, of this small encounter with your book and then hopefully going out and buying the, the copy and reading the whole thing?
1: Okay, um, that's a very big question. Um, I think if we can allow more voices from different cultures, from different ethnic backgrounds, a variety of philosophical perspectives perspectives, um, to be shared and to celebrate all that is good and interesting and rich and wonderful about the landscapes on this land and our various connections to it, then we and our island and our planet can only benefit. We
0: would truly create a magical space if we did that.
1: Mm-hmm.
0: Thank you. Thanks for joining us.
1: Thank you for having me.
0: And um, you've been listening to Planet Pod in partnership with the Wainwright Prize. Wonderland is published by Bloomsbury Wildlife, and you can find details of it and all the other shortlisted books on the Wainwright Prize website and on our website, theplanetpod.com, where you can find an extract of the books and subscribe to other episodes of Planet Pod. Thank you for listening, and do go out and buy the book. You've been listening to the stories behind the books, the Planet Pod series on the Wainwright Prize 2020. You can find details of all the shortlisted authors on the Wainwright Prize website or on our Planet Pod website. Do look them up and find out more. Thanks for listening.